art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to Art on Your Sleeve, episode 18. It's good to be back. It's been quite a long break and I apologise for that. But like most people, coronavirus has just been going on and on and on and affecting everyone around us. Thankfully, I've been okay, but I think we've all been affected in different ways, physically and mentally. It's also meant that I haven't been able to get out and about and interview people around the country as I'd like to. It's just not the same doing it on Zoom. And I think in the last episode, I said that that would be the last one that I would do via via recordings. But International Podcast Day is today. That's September the 30th. This happens every year on the same day. And I felt like it was a nice opportunity to use it as a vehicle to, to get back into podcasting and also to promote some of the podcasts I've listened to much more during lockdown I've not watched much television because it tended to all be one subject and it's hard enough to escape it as it is. So podcasting's been a, a, a nice diversion, being able to listen to people talking about things that interest me. So I've selected a series of podcasts that I think will also interest you. Well, they should do if you're listening to me because it's kind of related information around pop music. But what I've done with my six esteemed guests is get them to pick their favourite record covers and explain what it is particularly that they like about the album cover design, the songs themselves, and what the history of the, of the song or album has for them. I think all six are great and they're very, very different. And what they also do, and what I hope they would do, is provide a flavour of each of the shows. So think of them almost as little mini episodes of each podcast. So if you like what you hear, get online and follow them because I'd highly recommend all of the people I've um, selected for this episode. Detailed information about each of the podcasts is in the show notes for this episode, which are on my website at softoctopus.co.uk. I've also provided links directly to each of the sites and all of their social media, so do check it out. If I was to identify a single consistent link between each of the guests that I've got on this episode, I'd have to say that it was a commitment to to research, finding out absolutely everything that you possibly can about the subject. And that's because all of them care deeply about the things that they talk about. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a challenge and also a pleasure to to dig around into those darkest corners that, that have never really been explored. Brian and Sarah Lennon are the people behind the Permanent Record podcast and some of their episodes run over one, two or even three episodes covering many hours of conversation. So I'm going to start with Brian and Sarah and let them introduce themselves. Hi, this is Sarah and I'm with the Permanent Record podcast and I'm also here with my wonderful co-host Brian. Hey everybody, we are here to do a special mini episode of our podcast because Sarah, as you know, Andrew was kind enough to ask us both to contribute a five to ten minute segment for this special episode of Art on Your Sleeve. That's right. But we decided, well... This is what do, we do. <laughs> instead of doing it separately, let's do it together. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to do a tiny episode of our podcast. <laughs> very, very <laughs> tiny. I like it. So let's see how we can do it. We, All right. We're known for being long-winded. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Andrew asked, as you know, for each of us to talk about a record sleeve that means a lot to us. Yes. I put a lot of thought into it. Okay. I looked at all my records, looked at all my CDs, looked uh -huh. at all my cassettes, even in the back of the closet in the little cassette uh, bags. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I've decided that I have to go with Queen's Innuendo. Oh, wow. Uh, As you know, because uh -huh. you see this record cover every day, I'll every reveal why. I'll reveal day. why as we get going. <laughs> um, this cover was designed by Queen and Richard Gray with art by Granville. And the first thing that hit me when I started to research this, I was like, who is Granville? <laughs> so this is where I normally call on you, Sarah, but I'm going to give it a try because Granville is a French artist. Oh, boy. And I usually bail on trying to pronounce <laughs> French words. So I'll give it a shot. All right. It is his real name is Jean Ignace Isidore Gerard. Oh, I think he did a pretty good job. Thank you, thank you. I was sad to find out he didn't really have that long a career because he didn't live very long. He oh. was born in 1803 and he passed away in 1847. So oh my goodness. That's not too good. He started out, really, he came to fame because of his caricature skills. Oh. He did political satire in magazines and newspapers and things, and he was really popular for that. But there was like an old French law that 
prohibited things like that. Oh, really? And I don't know if it was Granville was just too bitingly close to the truth or whatever, <laughs> but for some reason, the government brought back this old law that they had done away with in 1835, so that kind of put the stops to his career as a political cartoonist. Oh, man, that's too bad. So to use a 21st century word here, he pivots mm. in his career, and he becomes mainly at that point a illustrator of books. Okay. And that's what he's going to do for the rest of his career, and that's where this cover comes from. It actually comes from one of his books, just a little tidbit of interesting information, Sarah. That is why we're here. <laughs> His first professional job as an illustrator uh -huh. was that he designed the artwork for a deck of cards of the game Old Maid. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Which I thought was awesome. But I also was like, you know, I haven't thought about Old Maid for like 20 years. Yeah. I had this deck of cards when I was a kid. I can actually remember like the title card, like uh -huh. this, this blue background with this old woman's face on it. Yeah. Old Maid. I used to play it all the time. Haven't yeah. thought about it. No. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we had a deck of old maid cards too. I'm sure they were not the ones designed by him. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, probably not. Oh, uh, Andrew over there is giving us a mean look. He says get oh. back on task. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> So most consider Granville's best work to have been an illustrated book entitled On Entre Mund. Not too bad. And the title of that translates to Another World. Okay. Which is interesting because that is the title of Queen guitarist Brian May's 1998 solo album. Oh. And if you recall, I bought that solo album in 1998, just a month after it was released. Yeah. At a record shop in London. Uh-huh. When we were there for our honeymoon. Yes. But let's not get into that because I'm, I'm still a little steamed that Andrew didn't invite us over when we were in his country hanging out for a week in London. In 1998. Yeah, I don't know what his deal was, but he didn't have time for us. Oh, hmm. We'll move on. So the artwork in that book is quite surreal, and it's from that book that Queen took this album cover. Now, Richard Gray, the first credit I can find for Richard Gray, who is the designer, is that he gets a credit in 1975 as the package designer of Queen's very famous album, A Night at the Opera. Ooh. And he has worked on every Queen release since 1986's A Kind of Magic, including The Miracle, Wembley, Made in Heaven, every compilation, you know, the endless number of Queen compilations <laughs> that have come out in the past uh -huh. 20 years. He's worked on all of them. Um, he's also worked with Kate Bush, Susie Quattro, but mainly his, his resume includes Queen, so I think they kind of keep him on the payroll and he doesn't branch out much from, from the Queen camp. But his work, I think, mainly on this is that the original illustration is in black and white. So on the cover, it's colored. Yeah. So I would imagine he's the one responsible for the colors. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, that was quite a job. Yeah, he got to go to work and just act like he's coloring in a coloring book. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good to me. That's good work if you can get it. Yeah. All right. So why this album means so much to me, this album was released in February 1991, around the time I was getting into the film Highlander with my college buddies. I remember. And so getting into Highlander led me to go out to Camelot Records at the mall, and I picked up... <laughs> Hollywood Records' recent reissue of A Kind of Magic, yeah. which was the unofficial soundtrack to Highlander, and I really, really liked it. You know, I had liked Queen as a kid, but most of America sort of lost interest in them around Flash Gordon or Hot Space, and mm -hmm. I followed suit. So it was cool. I was like, you know, Queen is awesome. This Highlander music is great. I've never yeah. heard it before. I've got to get some more Queen. I wonder what they sound like. So I figured the new album would be a good place to start, and that ended up being my second Queen purchase. And because it was so early in my discovery of the band, and I was so excited by the music and so excited to be getting into a, a new group like this, Innuendo goes on to become my favorite Queen album. To this day, if there's a fire in the house and I only have time to grab one Queen album, I'm going to grab Innuendo. I would support you in that. Cool. So that's how I came to know the album. Now, the image gets burned into my soul and becomes really important to me, you know, kind of because I, I love the album so much, but also because in 1991, but later in the year, in the fall, when we were moving back to college for the next semester, our third year of college, remember how like on college campuses and fall time, fly by night vendors just show up to like sell you stuff for your dorm room? Oh, yeah, I do. There was this guy who was selling posters. Oh, yeah. And he had this subway poster of the innuendo cover. And I couldn't believe that someone in America was selling like a current queen thing it yeah it seems so weird yeah that was a big deal so i got the subway poster i, I think it was 35 dollars. Ooh, that was a lot of which money was a lot of money to me as a college kid yeah but i had to have it so a subway poster if you're not familiar that's like a really big poster i think it's like 40 inches across by like 60 inches up and down yeah so it's really really big and that was on the wall for the rest of my college career so i was looking at that poster me too yeah <laughs> and lucky you you were looking 
at it still to this day because I don't know, it wasn't always there, but no. at some point in the past maybe five years, I'd say. Past five years, I decided, yeah. you know, I'm tired of this giant poster just being in this box. I'm putting it up in the bedroom. Yup. So it is now up in our bedroom where it's going to stay for the rest of our days. <laughs> and that's all right. <laughs> yeah, I really am glad you chose that one because it means a lot to me too, especially getting to see it every single day. You're lucky. You're a lucky woman. I am. So my thoughts on the illustration, I'm a fan of the pristine white border that wraps around the bright colors of the design. Clean white on an album must appeal to me because I actually thought about the Pet Shop Boys actually for a little bit. Okay. Like I said, the colors must have been added by Richard Gray because the original illustration is black and white. Uh, but the colors look really good. I think the image is better colored than black and white. I guess I can say that as a Queen fan and not a fan of fine arts. Probably yeah. serious scholars of art would think I'm ridiculous. How dare they change the original? Uh. There's something about that juggling figure that appeals to me. I never get tired of looking at that dude. I don't know. I'm not a fan of tattoos. Yeah. But if I had to get a tattoo, I would consider getting him. Oh, nice. Or the bat insignia. I was one of the bat insignia, <laughs> but then I think John Bon Jovi has it, and that kind of spoiled it for mm. me. And the balls that he's juggling have sort of intrigued me because at some point I noticed that they're kind of close to like a color wheel, the way they did it. Okay. Uh, I think you have to get rid of one of the red balls. There's two red balls, and I think there's a magenta one in there. But if you let those yeah. slide to the, to the side, you're left pretty much with red, orange, green, blue, purple, and you're missing yellow. But the yellow is represented by the banana okay. that is falling and yeah. it's going to crush the little man in a suit yeah. who's observing the yeah, juggling. Help us. So, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That was, uh, yeah, that's true. I wanted to get something with art, color wheel stuff because it's Andrew. Right. And yeah. I can't just say, oh, you Queen are... is awesome and I like looking at this You color. are pandering. I'm, pan I'm pandering. I'm shameless. <laughs> so, you know, before I ripped off the plastic and smelled the vinyl of innuendo and before the opening measures of the title track hit my ears, my eyes were the sense that introduced me to the album. So while there are all kinds of reasons why this record means so much to me, one of the main reasons I love it is indeed due to this wonderful cover illustration. So thanks to Andrew for giving me the opportunity to learn more about it. by saying I am not good at picking favorites of things I think you know this <laughs> I don't like to rank things you love ranking things you're like what's the top five this and I hate doing that I you hate just got to say this is definitely one of my favorites yeah that is then a you, good... co you cover your bases yeah for sure but you know this instance was actually quite easy for me this situation where I had to choose a favorite album cover immediately I knew which one I wanted to pick. Oh, wow. That was, there was no problem, no question. I'm like, there's no way I would pick another one. So that album cover is A Broken Frame by Depeche Mode. Ah, nice. Yeah. I know you're shocked, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not shocked. No, I'm just acting. So A Broken Frame is the second album by Depeche Mode. It was released in 1982. And it's also the second album cover photograph for the band by Brian Griffin. I wonder if he felt like he had something to prove after oh. that first cover. Oh, well, let's let's talk about that. Yeah, let me let me talk to you a little bit about Brian Griffin. I learned more about him, of course, doing research for this. And he was an interesting guy. He started off, you know, he was a photographer, went to school for that. And he started off his career by taking pictures for business publications in the early 70s, like business magazines. Mm -hmm. He quickly became well-known and recognized for his innovative uses of lighting. You know, he was really big into black and white photography, and he liked coming up with light contraptions and things that would give really interesting effects to the, the black and white photos. So then as the post-punk era of music dawned, he started gravitating towards music photography. And the explanation he gives for this is because many bands and artists at the time were wearing business suits. You know, people like Elvis Costello, bands like The Jam and The Specials. So he was already used to, to dressing up, <laughs> taking, taking pictures of guys in business suits. So it was an easy transition for him. He's done some iconic album covers of uh, artists in the 70s, those ones I just mentioned. Joe Jackson's Look Sharp, which famously Joe hated because it wasn't a picture of his face. It's the one with the, <laughs> with the shoes. Right. And Joe Jackson would never work with him again after that. But oh, wow. It's a famous yeah. cover, though. Exactly. I think everyone remembers it. Exactly. But that wasn't what he wanted. Short-sighted so. on the part of Joe Jackson. Yeah, I think so. So by 1980, Brian Griffin had opened his own photography studio. And it just happened to be in the same building as Mute Records. So that is how he ended up meeting Depeche Mode. And subsequently photographing the cover for their debut album, Speak and Spell. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've likely seen that album cover at some point in your life. <laughs> it features a large white swan wrapped in cellophane sitting in a silver nest against a red background. You kind of can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> 
another famous thing about it is that the band actually hated that picture. <laughs> <laughs> they, they thought it was terrible. And a lot of people were like, what is this? But um, they went ahead with it anyway. I'm not sure they had much of a choice. I'm sure there was some sort of a time deadline or something. Yeah, it's gone on to become pretty famous. But perhaps more surprisingly than them uh, going ahead with this cover they hated, they actually enlisted his services again when it came to a design that cover for the second album. And good thing they did. Yeah. However, they learned from their mistakes and their, their past, and they worked a lot closer with him for the next album cover. Brian Griffin had become known and definitely became famous for a style of photography and art which became known as capitalist realism. And that focused on photographing the worker. His dad was a worker, I think in a factory or a mine or something, you know, that kind of hard work stuff. And he, he very much admired people in, that, in those jobs and liked to capture photographs of them working. And Depeche Mode liked that aesthetic as well, and they wanted to use that on the cover of their next album. And he would, of course, continue his uh, use of dramatic and surrealistic lighting to bring out these really interesting colors and angles and things like that and shadows. So that was why Depeche Mode said, you know, let's do this again. Let's try again for a broken frame. That's so, cool that Depeche Mode around that time period sort of had that image that was slightly socialist. Yeah. Especially with construction time again. Yes, they kind yeah. of kept going in that direction. After This was kind of the catalyst. And, and then the next couple albums, we see that just further progressing on their album covers, you know, very industrial looking and the worker is very right. much featured. You've got to work hard. You've got to work hard. <laughs> you do. So the photo shoot for the broken frame cover took place in an East Anglian wheat field on a dark rainy day. Now, I keep seeing articles that say it was a cornfield, but wow, these people must not know their, <laughs> must not know their grains. You've got to learn your crops, I people. I know. I'm like, that is not, that's not corn. Is it winter wheat? Oh, it could be. Yeah, huh? it very well could be. I'm not that good. So there was a woman, of course, dressed in a Russian peasant costume designed and sewn by stylist Jackie Fry. And oh, by the way, they told her on Friday that they were going to do this photo shoot on Monday. So she had from Friday to Monday to come <laughs> up with this outfit. Wow. But she did. And of course, the woman has this outfit on, and she also has a large scythe with her. So they get out there, and oh, and the farmer was like, hey, hurry up with this, because I want to harvest this field. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they had all kinds of pressure on them. Don't make a farmer angry. I know. So it was raining most of the day. It was, you know, this cloudy, dreary day. I'm not sure if they hadn't checked the weather, or if maybe they wanted to check the weather and that this is what they wanted. But at, there was a point at which the rain finally stopped and the sky started to clear up. And Brian Griffin and his crew recognized the opportunity presented to them by this change in the lighting. Mm -hmm. And they started taking pictures like crazy. <laughs> but even with the addition of the natural lighting that they were getting from the sky, the grain was just not picking up the light the way that Griffin wanted. So he used his technique of applying artificial light to the foreground. And he, of course, had a flash and he had some filters, you know, to try to get the effect that he wanted. And when we say filters, we mean filters that you put onto the camera, yes. not a filter that you can use on a computer no. afterwards. Yes. No, exactly. Exactly. stuff was being done on site exactly live. this is 1982 there was no digital photography there was no way to quickly see how all of these this lighting was working out yeah. so griffin's crew had to take pictures with an instant polaroid camera at the same time as the other cameras that so they would have that immediate feedback that was probably a thing that they did all the time back then he's shooting with the i think it was an slr type of camera and the crew was using a little polaroid you know trying to get the same images so they could get that feedback oh and feedback back they got <laughs> brian griffin said later on when i saw it on the polaroid my assistant Stuart graham he almost freaked out at how incredible it was <laughs> and when daniel miller came to my studio i was just giggling in the corner while he went to the light box and he bent down with the magnifying glass to have a look and i thought he was going to have a heart attack he couldn't control his excitement you know so yeah, this photograph is just incredible with the lighting and the colors. Everything is just so wonderful. So I guess after hearing all that, it's probably not too hard to understand why I would choose it as my favorite album cover. It is an amazing photograph and it has several qualities that I personally am drawn to. For as long as I can remember, I've always been keenly aware of lighting. Uh, especially changes in lighting outside. When I go outside and I'll get unnerved on a cloudy day when the light seems to be coming from the wrong direction. Like, <laughs> right. like if it's coming from the east in the afternoon, I'll always say something to you. The lighting is wrong. What's going on? And it's just weird. I'm just very aware of that. So pictures with interesting lighting always appeal to me. And I also love pictures of wide open landscapes with big skies. If you look at my desktop wallpapers on my computer upstairs, you'll see this rotation of landscape photos with an emphasis on wide 
wide vistas and skies with interesting clouds and colors. So this photograph of a big open field with really dramatic lighting and coloring pushes all the right buttons for me. And one day during Christmas break, after my first semester in college, I found out how many other people not only knew about this photo, but also loved it. I was in a store. I don't remember which one. It was in Farmore. Oh, was it? Farmore. Was it Farmore? Okay. Oh my gosh. An old drugstore, an old pharmacy. And there on the magazine stand was a magazine with the picture from a broken frame on the front cover. I couldn't believe it. And it wasn't a music magazine. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> no, no, it was Life magazine. And it was a special collector's edition titled The World's Best Photographs, 1980 to 1990. And of course, I had to buy that magazine right away. <laughs> and I still have it. I have it to this day, which is good because when I looked on Amazon to see if it was available, uh, one guy was selling it for like $750. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I'm happy I still have it. I wasn't the only one who was surprised to see it on the cover. Brian Griffin was actually quite <laughs> astonished when he saw his photo on the cover of such a prestigious magazine. Life magazine was always known for its photographs and iconic imagery. Right, right. It's one of the things that made it so special. It was a photographic magazine, and they took great pride in choosing really well-done photographs. So his was on the cover of the magazine. You know, not much greater honor than that if you're a photographer. He kind of thinks that his photo was chosen because of not only for the gorgeous quality of it, but also because of the subject matter. Because if you remember what else was going on in the world at that time, the end of 1989, the Berlin Wall had fallen, communism was starting to kind of fizzle away. And so this image of a woman in Russian clothing with a sigh was kind of related in a way to current events. It just seemed sort of timely, he thinks. He doesn't think Life Magazine were big fans of the meaning of love? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Hmm. And that's the funny thing. As we talk about the album cover, you talked about how much innuendo meant to you and how great of an album it is. And I totally agree. I think it is my favorite Queen album. A Broken Frame is definitely not my favorite Depeche <laughs> Mode album. No, I think so, we gave that one three and a half record adapters. I think I gave it three, actually. And I looked back at my rating from, oh uh, my gosh. Maybe that's what I gave it Yeah, it's like episodes 36 and 37, so way back when. Probably still the lowest rating I've given anything. The album is just not as high on my list of albums as the album cover is. It's just a transitional album. It suffers from poor production, poor engineering. But I love, 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 love the cover. And it's just so gorgeous. And uh, I'm really happy to be able to take some time and, and share what I learned about it with all of you. And I hope you enjoyed learning about it, too. So, hey, Andrew, we want to wish you a happy World Podcast Day. Yes. Uh, that's to you and to your show, Art on Your Sleeve, which is one of my very favorite podcasts. Yeah. We're, we're so thankful to know you, Andrew. And we're so thankful for this opportunity to help you out and talk about stuff that we love as well. Keep up the great work. And thanks, my friend. And thank you. Thank you very much, Brian and Sarah. Really, really interesting uh, look at a couple of very, very different record sleeves from very different genres. But I, I would agree with you. I think they're great choices. I'm not a Queen fan at all. But looking back at the, the Queen catalogue, I would have to have to say that I think that that period does have the best design and I didn't ever know where those images had come from so it was fascinating to hear uh, that about the history of them and how they'd been recolored and stuff so I really appreciate it the, the Depeche Mode cover is one that I was familiar with and was an album that I bought on the day that it was released and it and like you said Sarah is such an iconic and famous image and it's probably up there you know in the in the top lists of best album covers generally really it's it's an image that a lot of people know so it was great to to get those insights i certainly learned some some new things from that which is useful because i'm actually writing about that record sleeve for a future article in classic pop magazine but my lips will remain sealed so on to my next guest Gavin Hogg from the Giddy Carousel of Pop. This is a, a podcast specifically dedicated to Smash Hits magazine and another one that I love. Interestingly, there's a, a, a link between Sarah's selection and Gavin's selection in that they have the same photographer and the same graphic designer. But I won't give anything more away and we'll go straight over to Gavin. <laughs> For my favourite record cover, I've chosen Echo and the Binnemann's Ocean Rain. It was from 1984. The photograph was taken by Brian Griffin in a cavern called Carn Glaze in Cornwall. Apparently, 
Fun fact, it was owned at the time by Jake Riviera, the uh, manager of Elvis Costello and one of the founders of Stiff Records. Strange but true, apparently. It was the Bunnymans' fourth album, and the three that had followed it had all featured photographs of Brian Griffin as well. Uh, and it always featured all four members of the Bunnymen on the front with a kind of a natural theme. So for the first album, Crocodiles, they were in a forest, they were on a beach for Heaven Up Here, and then they went to Iceland and were photographed on a very icy landscape uh, for Porcupine. So it's nice that it fits into that kind of theme of those records that had come before it. There's a nice continuity about it for that reason. Um, in fact, when you come to the final album, where Griffin didn't take the photograph, it wasn't great. There's a few good songs on it, but it's not as good as any of the four albums that come before it. So I'm not saying that the photographs make the albums better, but I think they've got a part to play. So what's on this album cover? We've got Les the bassist and Pete the drummer sort of slowly rowing the boat forward. And kind of what's interesting about them is that when you look at the lower half of their bodies, it looks like they're kind of conjoined and they're two halves of the same person. And it, it kind of reminds me of the the myth about the river Styx, the, the underground river that connects the world of the living to the world of the dead and the boatmen rowing the souls across from, from one to another. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, I don't know, but it seems to have kind of a, a resonance of that. Then you've got Will Sargent, the guitarist, just staring back at the photographer impassively. And then at the prow of the boat, like an indie figurehead, you've got Ian Mac McCulloch, um just narcissistically staring at and pointing at his own reflection in the water. There's a really classical feel to this cover. It's kind of like an allegorical oil painting where you feel like everything kind of means something in it. The poses the people are in are symbolic of something. Again, quite possibly not, but it feels like they should be. And you know, that's all you need, isn't it? Even if you don't understand exactly what's going on in it. I think the fact that it's got that classical feel means that it hasn't dated. There's not any really bad hair in it or really bad clothes in it. The typeface is really simple and cluttered. It's just got Echo and the Bunnyman and in one corner, an ocean rain in the other corner, just in a very standard unfussy font that still looks good. So although the album's 37 years old, I think it still looks like a great album cover. Obviously it wasn't Photoshop or artificially messed with in any way. In fact, there's YouTube video of the photo shoot. So if you wanted to go and have a look at that, you could. What is it I like about this cover? I think it's because I just love the music on this album anyway, which obviously helps, but it really fits so well to the style of the music in that it's, it's quite quiet, it's mysterious, uh, it's fragile. It just kind of creates its own world. So when you put Ocean Rain on, you do kind of enter this world and it is almost like going into this cavern and dipping yourself into this calming blue water. And the blue is an insane amount. It's almost psychedelic in the the oversaturation of it and it kind of looks natural and totally unnatural at the same time because it's just so so over the top it goes through the water and then is reflected up on the walls and the ceiling of the cavern there's a lot of lyrics on the album to do with water obviously there's a song ocean rain itself which is water on water and then the seven seas so the fact that the album cover is so blue and watery just again fits with the themes on the album and so I like the fact that it, it's a really kind of unifying concept. I think one more thing I really like about this album is the fact that it kind of poses questions. I guess what I was saying before about the allegorical and sort of oil painting quality to it means that you, you're kind of thinking about what's going on in the picture and you're wondering, well, where are they coming from and where are they going to? Well, where are they coming from? It looks like they've come from a hole in the side of the cavern or they've just rode through the wall. Actually, if you watch that video, I was mentioning earlier on on YouTube about the photo shoot, you'll know that there's not actually a gap there and it was just a shadow and a, an optical illusion caused by the lights. And where are they going to? Well, we don't really know. Well, we do know they're going towards their fifth album, which was their final album in this incarnation. And unfortunately, wasn't as good as any of the preceding four albums. So, um, yeah, they weren't really heading in the right direction. They should have turned the boat around and gone back through that gap, I reckon. However, they left us with this great album. Luckily, the music on it is fantastic. The record sleeve is beautiful, and if you don't know this album, what are you thinking? It's been around for 37 years, so, you know, get your bleeding finger out. I 
<laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Gavin. I have to agree with you about this album. Uh, it is one that people should know about, and I'm not sure everybody does. I'm not a massive Echo and the Bunnymen fan, but I would say that this is a peak for me, and it definitely contains some of their best songs ever, and probably their best album cover as well. Uh, I love what you've said there, and uh, yeah, I can only agree with you, really. It's a really enchanting, vibrant, and intriguing image. Um, yeah, brilliant. Do check out Gavin's podcast, The Giddy Carousel of Pop, which he produces with Simon Galloway. It's a really interesting show, and if you've read Smash Hits as a, a younger person, you'll certainly love it. I know that I do. It's one that I never miss an episode of. Thanks so much. So over to my next guest, Mark from the My 80s podcast. Again, I'm getting a bit repetitive here, but another brilliant show that goes into the minutiae of, of every aspect of 80s pop by largely interviewing the people who are more behind the scenes with, with seminal records that we'll all be familiar with. So far, these include um, an extensive series about Tears for Fears, which was just fascinating. But he's also interviewed producers such as Chris Hughes and Stephen Haig, who, who's responsible, it seems, for every piece of perfect pop produced in the 1980s. So... Without further ado, let's just go straight over to Mark. Hi, I'm Mark at the Atisography Music Podcast. Thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity to discuss my favourite record sleeve, which is a great idea. I was trying to think about what sleeves had the most impact on me. Narrowed it down to the vinyl years in the 80s, which is really the last decade with the sleeve, really had prominence both in the record store and also in the bedroom. Actually, that sounds a bit rude. Uh, I don't mean like record sleeves were used in some bizarre sex act. Don't think that happened. Um, I mean, as a kid, pouring over the sleeve and the inner sleeve uh, as you listen to the record, I debated which record to choose. Uh, as with most people, the first port of call is usually the fabs. Uh, and I remember as a kid, my, one of my first memories of being interested in music was going through my parents' record collection and finding all those, those classic Beatles albums, like A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. And I remember, it's a very young kid, after Lennon died, so this had been like probably early January 81, seeing the cover of With The Beatles, and the picture of John, and then seeing the inner gatefold sleeve picture of him on the White Album, and not being able to work out how it was the same person, because they were like two completely different people to me. Always clear, as that's a real clear memory of mine. How are those images? That's what I want. Uh, but I'm not going to be that obvious. And I, I hope doing this is not against the remit, but I'm not going to pick one sleeve or even an album. Uh, I was tempted by Please by uh, Petrol Boys, that beautifully minimalist white sleeve with a small picture of them with the white towels around their shoulders in the center. Minimalist look, very against the grain in the mid 80s. And look beautiful on vinyl. And of course they messed it up with the first issue on CD by blowing up the picture to fill the frame more a perfect metaphor for the importance placed on the composition of a sleeve for the compact disc generation. Uh, it's a great sleeve and a great inner sleeve too. I, I remember so clearly buying the album. I, I, I fell in love with the song Love Comes Quickly and then bought the album on vinyl in a, an R price in Cheltenham. But I'm, I'm going to go about the single sleeves from there, using quotation fingers now, Imperial period, or the discography period if you will, from 86 to 91. Basically, anything after West End Girls. When you look at the West End Girls sleeve, the Parlophone number one single version of West End Girls, and I'm looking at it now, it's a dodgy pick of the group with NAF typesetting gauche red lettering on blue background with crappy dots behind it. Generic, cheap, potential one-hit wonder obscurity beckoning for this group, you would reckon from looking at this. By the next single, Love Comes Quickly, uh, the contrast is apparent. Stark picture of shadowy Chris with a boy baseball cap, that kind of iconic look. No band name, just a song title. Simple, classy, beautiful image, and that set the template for what was to come. And with it, there was an ethos created, an identity. It was the whole package. The music, the B-sides. The B-sides were phenomenal. It's a case that we made the Petrol Boys' best album is Disc One of Alternative, which is their first B-sides collection. Um, I'm kind of veering off topic here, and I'm talking about the music side. I should be talking about the sleeves. I think the packaging, certainly then, made up about, I'd say, 40% of the experience of having a record buying a record. I remember the first single I bought was Vienna by Ultravox. And it didn't have a picture sleeve and I felt a bit cheated. I felt like this isn't the whole single. still love the record. It genuinely pains me. Is that a bit sad? That my kids will never truly experience the joy of losing themselves in an album 
putting it on, reading the lyric sheet, staring at the cover, that truly immersive experience. That 40 minute journey where you're cocooned within the music with the cover and the lyric sheet to help navigate your way through. And, and, and even as an adult, myself, I don't do that. I mean, you can stream the latest from your favorite, you can Google the lyrics and read them as you're listening but it's, it's not immersive the same way like streaming music files you're not getting the full audio experience and it's equally the same visually something has been lost yes i'm a grumpy old good the pet shop boys sleeves oozed class and a smart sensibility you would know what the band were about without hearing a note of music just by looking at the, the sleeves and i think a lot of that was down to mark farrow as well uh, but i used to stick my seven inch singles the ones i collected the artists i collected i would stick them on my bedroom wall. Talk about ruining the back covers with blue tack. So I have like petrol boys on one part of the wall and then have Madonna singles. I'm not gay. <laughs> uh, or McCartney or whoever else I collected. And there were things of beauty to look at as the soundtrack to your life played in the background. I should apologize to my parents 30 years later for that. The best pop music creates its own world. It is both universal in spirit because it needs to appeal to everyone to, to have any chance of being successful but also makes you feel when you buy into it you're part of an exclusive club and that's especially true of singles because only fans buy all the singles it's an incredibly potent and important thing for kids and teenagers to feel they belong to something and singles were like tickets to an unofficial fan club without the flexi disc or the crappy blurry poster so i've gotten rid of all my singles now my pet singles which was, and it was kind of sad to let them go but you know kids in a lack of space kind of put paid to that I said I don't know, is this a male thing the obsession is kind of stuff because I was just my, my wife thinks like you know she'd think I'd be a total loser talking about this but then again I'm doing an 80s music podcast she already thinks I'm a loser but I don't know I think that like, the sleeves they're like imprinted on my psyche I will forever when I hear these songs instead of thinking of the video I will think of the cover I will see Neil and Chris standing by the train track or looking bored on a motorcycle in front of a dusty Springfield backdrop or doing whatever the hell they were doing on the cover of Left to My Own Devices. I can chart my adolescence, my teenage years into my 20s through Petra Boy singles. Each one a signpost, an oral stepping stone taken through life, a chapter with an accompanying picture. And each one, each image, is still potent and powerful a memory. Really interesting to hear some of the things that you said there, Mark, because they're things that I'm sure a lot of people would connect with. I know that that I certainly did, particularly the things that you mentioned about blue tacking the, your favourite record covers to your to your bedroom wall. Um, I did that and ruined my parents' wallpaper. And also that thing around the, the, the immersive aspect of what pop music was in, in those days. So it wasn't just about the music, it was about the record sleeve and it was a, a, a greater package that I think just doesn't exist now, which is really, really sad. Um, and also, is it a boy thing? It's because it's it's interesting to note that almost all of the people that I contacted to be involved in this show were were men. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know what it is. Is it something that particularly appeals to to boys rather than girls, or men rather than women? Um, I suppose we should be super thankful that Sarah's been involved in this episode just to try and dispel that that myth. But yeah, fascinating stuff. And thank you for doing your podcast as well, because it's it's just a, a, an incredible um, dig around into those aspects of music production that has always fascinated me and largely goes uncovered in the press. And you don't you generally don't find out the sort of stuff that you do cover in your podcast. So keep them coming. Again, there's a link with the next podcast and the one that's just gone but I won't go into any further detail. I'll just hand over to Ian at the Back to Now podcast. This is a show that covers the Now Records compilation albums that, well, are still going today. But Ian kind of digs back into the, the history of the album and interviews people who have some significant connection with them. Again, another fascinating show, but I'll let Ian talk about it here. <laughs> Hi, this is Ian, and I put together the Back to Now podcast. And the album sleeve that I've chosen is from 1988, and it's the Pet Shop Boys, and it's introspective. So why have I picked this album? Well, I had been following the Pet Shop Boys since West End Girls, and had absolutely loved everything that they had released. 
And up to that point, there was a look to their albums. Each one of their album sleeves had this crisp white look to it. You had Please with its tiny small picture of the band in the middle. And then you had Actually. But there, were, there was a look to these albums. And then in autumn 1988, this album arrived introspective with this amazing wash of colours. And looking back now, you could say it's Soul Pet Shop Boys, but it just absolutely stands out. This was very much Pet Shop Boys in what we now call the Imperial phase, when it's deemed that the Pet Shop Boys could do no wrong. But to look at this album in its context, six 12-inch mixes, most of them had already been released either by the Pet Shop Boys or by bands like Eighth Wonder, You've got Left to My Own Devices, this epic Trevor Horn-produced, grandiose statement of intent. Che Guevara and Debussy to a disco beat, a revamped remix of I Want a Dog by Frankie Knuckles, no less. The new track Domino Dancing, I'm Not Scared, this huge, bombastic, always in my mind remix, always in my house. And then the nod to house music, Sterling Void, It's All Right. What a brave move, six 12 inches in this minimalist, striped coloured sleeve. Um, it's just so brave. Designed by Mark Farrow at Three Associates with the Pet Shop Boys, it is allegedly the Pet Shop Boys' least favourite album cover. But looking back now, it's just so iconic. Christmas 1988, I got my first CD player and Introspective was the first CD that I was given and looking back now it was just mind-blowing this digital crisp sound and holding this small piece of artwork in your hands with this bright vibrant colours it was taking me forward into this new digital world it just absolutely made sense and of course to almost complement that on the back of the album cover completely black and that wonderful small typeface, that small font at the bottom of there, giving us all that information that we that we loved to have, the running order of each of the tracks, producers, the remixers, all of that. Um, it gave us everything that we need. Neil and Chris have said that their favourite version of this is, ironically, <laughs> very Pet Shop Boys, the vinyl version. And of course, the cassette, the vinyl and the CD all have different colour combinations. Of course they do. And that is, again, what makes them so fantastic. And inside are these superb portraits of Neil and Chris. Yellow background, yellow t-shirt. Again, it's just it's just this vibrance of club culture. It's this coming together of house music and high energy music. Chris is wearing this cap as well, which just adds to the whole kind of house feel to things. It looks like he's just arrived straight off the plane from Ibiza. Pet Shop Boys revisited this colour scheme as they moved into the 90s. Behaviour moved back to the white look with the portraits, but after that, 1993's Very album had a very vibrant, bold colour scheme to it as well. Pinks and oranges. There was even a limited edition Lego-style version of the CD case. And again, in 1996, bilingual, bold yellow colour scheme. Tom Watkins, the legendary manager of the Pet Shop Boys, is alleged to say that when people saw the test card on TV, it would remind them to go out and buy the Pet Shop Boys. Never one to miss a trick when it came to marketing was Tom Watkins. So yeah, looking back, introspective, it has fantastic memories for me musically, but that iconic cover for me, it's a statement of art, it's a statement of intention, it's just so wonderfully Pet Shop Boys and always, always a massive favourite album cover for me. tire of left to my own devices by the pet shop boys it's just such a brilliant piece of pop music that just has everything about it it's just got great lyrics it's great percussion and it's just the most catchy song it's just got everything going for it as as introspective as an album actually and, and i'd agree with you on this one ian that um 
it just seems very apt for its time. That cover, even though we probably were all expecting another white record sleeve, the fact that it was so vibrant said so much about that time as well. It was it was all about clubs and dance music. And whilst this album wasn't a cliched dance album, it did tap into that movement with, with the involvement of some of those remixes like Frankie Knuckles, etc. And the, the, the colours that were used on it were very much about that, that scene and the vibrancy and energy that was going on around that time. I was, I, I'd not long qualified as a graphic designer and, and just loved the design of that sleeve because it was tapping into all of the things that, that I, I'd been influenced by as a designer myself, like the work of Peter Saville for Factory Records. You could see very much that Mark Farrow was, was influenced by that and it indeed even worked for Factory Records himself prior to this but uh, yeah i love what you said and completely agree um great album great cover from from a great band which is evidenced by the fact that so many people who i asked to be involved in this episode have have picked neil tennant and chris lowe they've seldom do anything wrong as far as i'm concerned so on to my next guest hey everybody it's john lamoureux with the with the hustle podcast i love this question I love the idea of discussing an album that we bought or grew to love simply because of the way that it looked, uh, because of the graphics or the art. I knew exactly the one I wanted to go to when Andrew posed this question. My selection, and let me preface this, I think a lot of us, if you're a deep music lover and used to spend a lot of time in record stores, chances are pretty good most of us out there bought an album or a CD at some point in our lives strictly because the cover looked interesting. It looked like something that we might like, we'd never heard of, or we didn't think we'd heard of, uh, didn't know any of the songs, but just something about holding that cover in our hands looked interesting. My pick is Nick Lowe's 2001 album, The Convincer. Three, four. You look like butter wouldn't melt in your mouth. So I went into Borders. You guys remember Borders? I miss Borders. You could go in, you could read a book, you could look at CDs. They had all these end caps with uh, all the latest releases and there would be a listening station there. You could you know, punch in the numbers and which song you wanted to hear. I had heard of Nick Lowe, obviously. I knew Cruel to be Kind. I knew a couple other songs, but I'd never gone real deep on his, um, his albums. And uh, okay. You step up to this end cap and there's this intensely intense shade of blue. The cover of the convincer is it's just Nick sitting there staring at you, almost daring you to buy this album. The blue background behind him is this intense shade that I don't know if I'd seen before, but whatever it was, it, there was something so comforting and inviting about it that was drawing you in the, the incredible shade of blue. And then there's Nick. And Nick, if you don't know, he he's had white hair since he was probably 30 years old. And he's just this dapper, sort of scoundrelly looking gentleman. And he's there in a suit and he's holding a cigarette and his hair looks just so. He looks like an older, uh, distinguished James Bond. And the look on his face looks as if he's daring you to buy this album. You know, I dare you play to hit play on this thing in this end cap at borders and listen to what i have going on here i dare you to do that because the the smirk that scoundrelly smirk on his face is so confident that you feel as if you know he he's daring you to do this so i did i thought oh nick low i've always liked what little i know of nick low i uh, should give this a i should listen to this put on those headphones i hit play the first track on the album is called Home Wrecker. And it starts out really um, kind of gravelly. It's it's very uh, minimal, very almost bluesy, or like uh, ancient folk music or something like that. Sparse, there's the word, sparse. And he kind of comes in in this sort of gravelly croon of his. He has a really beautiful sleek voice, but it's almost a whisper in this case. And he's talking about a woman that ruined his life. She was such a temptress. 
you look like butter wouldn't even melt in your mouth. You look like you could take candy from a baby. And I've seen you do it. These are the lyrics to Homewrecker. You know that he has ruined his life. Um, anyway, and, and he should know because he's a homeless man because she wrecked his home. That kind of cool, cold, frozen lyrics in this warm, sparse musical bed with that intense shade of blue looking at you and Nick's face smirking. It just made for this listening experience that was all encompassing, all consuming. It had everything you would want where the album cover draws you in and the sound of the music out of the gate uh, warm, warms you up, gets you even more exciting to see what's coming later. Now, there are other songs on this album that <laughs> there's there's one called Lately I've Let Things Slide, which I think <laughs> all of us could relate to. There's a song called I'm a Mess. There's a song called Only a Fool Breaks His Own Heart, which is interesting because this the just these titles alone belie the confidence that you think Nick has when he when you go into the beginning of this album but it's not it's uh it's just beautiful sparse warm americana done by a perfect perfect song craftsman like nick lowe he has been at this a long time and been good at it his entire career and this to me is one of his crowning achievements this uh convincer album what a perfect name for an album like this the convincer because that's exactly what he looks like on the cover he's convincing you to buy this album and check it out anyway that is the first and biggest example that comes to mind of an artist and an album that i grew to love just because that that cover uh spoke to me the, the mixture of the color and the look on his face and the name and then to even what it sounded like was secondary, but then to hit play and have home wrecker come on and have it sound like the feeling you're getting from looking at the cover, it was all a perfect package. And I'm a diehard, huge Nick Lowe fan ever since. Thank you, John. That's a really interesting selection um, very, and very, very different to everything else that's gone before. Um, I, I am aware of Niccolo's work because my brother was a fan and still is. He goes and sees him live. Uh, and Niccolo is an artist whose catalogue of releases has consistently had interesting design to it. You know, he was originally on Stiff Records back in the 70s. Um, and they always had interesting graphic design, largely by uh, Barney Bubbles, who was a graphic designer who went on to influence so many of the designers that, that, that we now consider you know, great designers of the 80s. They, they wouldn't have got where they were without the sort of groundbreaking ideas of Barney Bubbles. Um, so yeah, really interesting to hear what you said about that. And uh, I will check out the album because I, I, it, it, it's an interesting concept and I agree with you about some of the appropriateness of the titles. Also, listeners, do check out John's podcast. He has an incredible back catalogue of episodes. Makes me feel utterly ashamed because he seems to churn them out at such a regular, regular rate. Uh, and has inter interviewed so many fascinating people. Again, people from the production side and individual musicians who've worked on albums that we'll all know. So highly recommend John's podcast, The Hustle. Do check it out. So on to my final guest before I share my favourite record cover. A couple of episodes back, I did a Eurovision special because I think Eurovision is a much maligned TV show competition phenomena or cult, depending on how you want to look at it. And so we did a podcast a couple of episodes ago where we looked at singles or songs that have been released for the Eurovision Song Contest and did a kind of critique of the designs for each of those songs. Um, so, yeah, I do listen to a couple of Eurovision podcasts, but I think my favourite is probably the Euro Trip. Highly recommend it. Obviously, it'll help if you're a fan of Eurovision, but if not, it's also a really interesting insight into the sort of background of the competition, what goes on, and they kind of cover all aspects of it, which I find very, very interesting. It's hosted by two people, and James Rowe, thankfully, um, was interested in contributing to this episode. So over to James to see what his favourite design is. 
Hi there, my name's James Rowe and I present the Eurotrip podcast alongside Rob Lilly where we speak to the biggest names from the world of the Eurovision Song Contest every single week and bring you a little bit closer to the contest we all know and love. Now, when Andrew asked us to take part in this special episode, I immediately rushed uh, to my vinyl collection and was met by uh, virtually no Eurovision music at all, I'm ashamed to say. I think the best I could find, actually, was a cover of Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart by Nicky French, who represented the UK at the contest in 2000. Um, Now, the artwork on that one isn't necessarily much to shout about, actually, uh, despite how genuinely enjoyable Nicky French's music is. I was talking with choosing other vinyl covers, my favourite Beatles album, Sgt Pepper, for example, but there must be an expectation that I'm going to choose something Eurovision-related. So I will. This isn't a single, uh, but it's a full album, in fact. It's the official album from the 2021 Eurovision Song Contest. Why? Well, the design of this cover is so much more than just the artwork you see. It's a theme. There's a story behind it. Now, each year, the host city of the contest chooses a theme and an artwork to brand the contest. We've seen Sweden with Come Together in 2016, Ukraine with Celebrate Diversity in 2017, but Rotterdam in 2021 went with Open Up. Sometimes I know my fire burns low, but as long as you're with me, I'll never get cold. Day and night, through darkness and light, I never worry when you're by my side. As the executive producer of the contest in 2021, Baka said, the slogan is intentionally incomplete, effectively allowing us, the audience, to, to fill in the gap. The Netherlands sees itself as a country which is very open-minded, and at a time when the world seemed simultaneously more fractured and yet more connected, the slogan and theme couldn't be more appropriate. The artwork itself embraces the open-up theme, The album cover itself sports a unique design, with the colours of the competing nation's flags lining out from a central point, which marks the location of Rotterdam, the host city of course. Now, despite the length of each line varying depending on the distance each country is from the Netherlands, the fact they all meet in this centre point really symbolises that shared connection we all have across Europe and beyond. No matter what, music still manages to connect us all. Now in the 2021 contest we saw songs like Russian Woman from Manesia which broke down walls within her home country of Russia allowing Russians to open up to tolerating difference. Shum from Goe which allowed us to open up to dancing and feeling that nightclub vibe again after so much time away. Or even John's Tears with Two Looney Ver which allowed us to open up to the emotions we'd all been feeling for the past year. The theme and artwork featured on the cover is so much more than it is on the surface, and I'm glad to have been able to speak about it a little bit here, as we know the majority of the Eurovision audience is casual, just watching the live shows in May, but so much more work goes into the contest that we don't really see, with stuff like the artwork not really being fully appreciated by everybody who watches on the night. So here's to more years to come where host countries choose a visual theme which really tells a story, bringing us all together as one. Out of the room, out of the embers, you and I gonna light up the room. Thank you very much, James. That was really interesting. And and I, I kind of agree with you, really, that there isn't a lot of great design with Eurovision in terms of the records that are released. 
but for this year the graphic design and branding for the competition was just exceptional and built very nicely on the previous year that was unfortunately cancelled there was a great sort of connection between the two years and I think the best best logos and graphic design are, are things that not only look great but also have have a great concept and meaning behind them. Um, and and I think that this certainly does. Unfortunately, with it being an uh, audio podcast, it's hard to it's hard to convey it. So. All of the images for every record cover that we've talked about in this podcast are all on the main show notes page at softoctopus.co.uk and are also included in the Facebook group. We'll be, I'll be posting them in there as well. But um, just to, to elaborate a little bit, the, the logo was designed by an agency called Clever Frank. Um, I'll just read a little bit from, the, from their information. It says that like last year, the logo and concept was developed by agency Clever Frank, which generated the logo using software developed in-house. The design of the 2020 edition was awarded a European Design Award and a Red Dot Design Award, which is fantastic and sort of backs up what you were saying about how how clever the design is and how um, inventive and original it was. So thank you very much for uh, for that. Uh, really appreciate it. And once again, I agree. What would I have done if people had selected things that I hated? Thankfully, I don't have to worry about that. But I did have to pick a cover of my own, which was really difficult. So I do do feel everybody's pain having to pick one record cover. And um, I thought about it long and hard. And I came up with something that at the time confused me a little bit, but I was intrigued by it. such a catchy tune i hope you were all singing along to that that was from dazzle ships by omd an album released on the 4th of march 1983 omd had always opted out of appearing on their album covers which from their 1980 debut onwards really uh, led to a series of ingenious designs mostly under the creative direction of peter saville by the time of dazzle ships their experimental fourth album They'd reached the dizzying heights of design decadence with five people involved in the design of its gatefold die-cut extravaganza. To quote Peter Saville, the idea came from me from seeing this Edward Wadsworth image in an art catalogue. Wadsworth was inspired by seeing these camouflage battleships in the docks in Liverpool, and it's such a great term. Wow, dazzleship, what does it mean? I had to know more. Andy McCluskey is somebody with whom I shared a kind of discovery. He picked up on it and it became the theme. I found the cover very difficult as I'm not the best person for doing camouflage. I'm too reductive. Every time I tried, there was nothing left by the end of the day. And I ended up giving it to Malcolm Garrett and saying, could you do this again because there's no camouflage left? I've taken it all away. I quite like his honesty with that really because uh, yeah, Peter Saville is known for his minimalism and this record sleeve isn't minimalist in any way. out it's printed on all sides it's got holes cut in it it's got inside sleeves that fold out and react with the holes that are printed in it so you can sort of create special effects when you slide the sleeves in and out it's it is quite an extravaganza um, and at the time I, I, I loved the design of it probably more than I liked the music it took a, a long time for me to appreciate the album as it did for most people I think it's an album that is only now being reappraised really Interestingly as well with this record sleeve, we all appreciate that there was a bit of a, uh, a reduction in quality when vinyl moved to CD as we went from a 12 inch square format down to, I don't know, roughly five inches. So it didn't feel as special when we moved to CD. Whilst the quality got better of the sound, the packaging seemed to be reduced in some ways. But what OMD did, whilst the, the CD lost all of the die cuts and all of the, the printing and the fold outs and all of that, 
slightly pretentiously what they did add to the booklet was a, a, a three-page story sp all about dazzle ships which i think was a, a fun thing to do if, if slightly pretentious so i'll just read the first paragraph of it from the booklet the thermometer has been stuck on zero for two hours but you know it's much colder the pain in your nostrils as you breathe in the frozen air tells you that much below and as far as the eye scans to the dim horizon are endless grey ocean swells, jagged white by an icy Baltic wind. Yes, pretentious perhaps, but also a bit of a stroke of genius and OMD still are quite uh, known for you know doing their own thing really and that's what, what I find interesting about this album cover and the album itself. Conceptually it's an interesting thing to do, particularly for a band that were expected to release something highly commercial. Uh, I love the fact that they did their own thing and, and continue to do so. So the sounds of genetic engineering by OMD from their Dazzle Ships album bring this episode of Art On Your Sleeve to an end. I hope you've enjoyed listening to all the people who contributed to this episode. I certainly have, and I'm very, very grateful to everybody who spent time creating clips to send to me. I think it's a nice way of celebrating International Podcast Day, and I hope that uh, it does spread the message of podcasting a little bit further. It's a great platform for finding your own specific niche. I've discovered so much great music and so many great people by listening to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a review for the podcast. That's something I always forget to ask. And don't forget to join the Facebook group. That's where all the discussion goes on. Just look for Art On Your Sleeve podcast at facebook.com. Thanks. Bye-bye.